Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and our reading this morning will be from verses 1, uh, 2, and 3. Listen now to the inspired, inerrant Word of our God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we worship You this morning. We lift up Your name and declare that You alone are worthy of all praise and adoration. And even as we have sung about your great grace toward us, we are reminded of the security that we have in Christ, the peace that we have in Christ. And as we will look this morning into your word, we are reminded of the unity that we have in Christ. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts by your spirit in these next few minutes to reveal to us our own hearts, our own need for You, to reveal to us what You have given us in Christ, what You have given us by Your Spirit. So we ask that You would work in our hearts in these next few minutes, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are at the end of another year, and this is the time of year when, uh, as uh, Rick mentioned, maybe some people uh, make resolutions about the new year, and then by week three of January, they've broken those usually. Uh, But that doesn't have to be the case, but we're looking this morning, thinking about this past year, and, and this is the time when we take stock of our lives and, and, uh, we consider what we might need to address, how we've been doing, what our families are like, what, what this last year has brought, and of course it's been a huge year for us, but we want to examine and think about some areas that we might need to address in our own lives. And as we have spent time in these last few months as a church, we have been focusing very heavily on doctrine, and that is appropriate given our situation in our evening times together in evening church, we have been looking through covenant theology and examining how the Bible is put together, how God has communicated to us the history of redemption and what it means for us, what it means for how we read the Bible. There's been a lot of doctrine, and that's been appropriate. That's been a good thing. In our Sunday school class, which is normally at 9 o'clock, and we'll restart again next week, we have been examining doctrine, looking through the Second London Confession. And there we've talked about the doctrine of Scripture itself. We've talked about uh, God and who He is and, uh, and, and what He's like. And then we've talked about creation. We've talked about um, God's decree and providence. And these are all vitally important issues of doctrine that we've been looking at, and uh, both in our Sunday school time and in our evening church time those are good. We need to understand them biblically, and I don't mean in any way to downplay those topics or downplay the importance of those topics. We would be way off the mark, though, if we were to say that doctrine is all of the Christian life. We dare not do that. Uh, If we made the mistake that believing that doctrine is all there is in the Christian life, that would be a grave error. 
And really, when we come to our passage today in Ephesians chapter 4, we have uh, Paul giving us some instruction on how to think about that topic of the relationship between doctrine and life. And so, we pick up the passage here. We've not been working through Ephesians, but uh, we can start there in verse 1 of chapter 4. And basically what we're noticing here is Paul says, live consistently with your beliefs. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And we encourage you, when you see the word therefore, to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? And so that reminds us that what he's saying here in chapter 4 and verse 1 is built upon or is drawing conclusions from, is closely related to what has come before. And what has come before, of course, has been a doctrinal exposition. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians are loaded with doctrine, loaded with doctrine. He has been uh, talking there about salvation. And if you just skim through, just flip back in your Bible and even just look at the headings or your own underlinings that you have made in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, you can see that there has been a lot of doctrine that's been discussed, particularly on the topic of salvation. This first major paragraph of chapter 1 is the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And he's talked about how the, this salvation that we have finds its origin in the mind of God, and it comes to us by God's blessing. And he has worked through in great detail what that doctrine looks like. He's talked in chapter 2 about how that doctrine is brought to application to us particularly and, and what it means for our own salvation. And then towards the end of chapter 2, he, he, he begins to uh, talk about the unity that that creates, how Jew and Gentile who have been separated uh, in, in, in really all of redemptive history to that point have been now united in Christ and what that means. And so he's been arguing this doctrine. He's been talking about this doctrine. And what he's saying when he says, therefore, is that this doctrine that I've been teaching, these truths that we've been going over have direct application in your life. Let's bring it down to our lives. And so he's going to draw some conclusions. He's going to make some applications. The word therefore indicates that. We saw the same thing in in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 where he transitions from the great doctrinal sections to now how it applies to us and other places as well. So he says, therefore, but look what he calls himself in verse 1, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul is a prisoner for the Lord. Now, he's not just throwing that in there so that we will feel sorry for him, so that we will um, you know, just imagine what it's like with him in chains and, and under arrest, which he was a, a number of times, and he, he would uh, write letters from prison, and, and some of the epistles we have in the Bible are written that way, and Ephesians is one of those. He's not just saying that so we will know uh, kind of his context, you know, that, you, know you, should, you should feel sorry for me because I'm a prisoner. No, he, he's telling us this because he's about to say, Remember all that doctrine we talked about? Live consistently with that doctrine. And I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, have done that. Why is Paul a prisoner? It's not because he uh, was, was arrested robbing a bank. It's not because he uh, did something that was terribly illegal or wrong. He's in prison for proclaiming the gospel. He's in prison because he would refuse to back down from proclaiming the gospel. Because he kept getting himself into trouble with local officials or, or in different ways because he is Christ's. He belongs to Christ. He's a minister for Christ and he's going to continue that way. So much so that even, even when he was faced with the opportunity of recant these things and you could be set free, if you'll just, if you'll just tone it down a little bit, Paul, you won't have troubles like this. That's not Paul's way. He's willing to be a prisoner for the Lord. He believes these things are true, and he can show you the 
outworking of it in his life because of where he is even in writing this letter. He says something similar in Acts chapter 20 uh, when he is uh, calling to himself the Ephesian elders and, uh, and says to them, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. So he's headed to Jerusalem and, and, and there's something in the wind. He doesn't quite know what's going to happen there, not knowing what will happen except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul, who's looking at his itinerary, he's, he's traveling back from the mission field, he's headed back to Jerusalem. He has his own purposes for doing so, and they're good and, and great purposes. They are purposes rooted in the gospel in service to Christ. And he says, I don't really know what's going to happen, but the Spirit keeps telling me that imprisonments and afflictions await me. So the next question is, well, Paul, have you considered changing your itinerary? <laughs> Maybe go somewhere else. Maybe you should try visiting another place. But this is his response. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul believed what he said. He believed what he had written in this epistle and in other places, and it was evidenced by the fact that he was willing to face imprisonment. He was willing even to give up his life because he was convinced that what he believed is true. And he understood the outcome, the consequences. He understood the significance of what he believed for various aspects of his life. He didn't make excuses. He didn't cut corners. He was willing to go and even be imprisoned and even die for the sake of what he believed. And so he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What does that word worthy mean? I think it, it, it might be blown out of proportion, it might be misunderstood in some context. Basically, the idea of worthy here is that uh, it's the idea of being appropriate, that our life should be appropriate to our beliefs. Our life should be fitting with, should be in line with our beliefs. The things that we say See, for Paul, who was the one who uh, had been called in such a great way uh, to Christ on the road to Damascus and his experience, what God had called him to do, the appropriate thing for him, the, 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 the lifestyle that was fitting for, for someone who had received such grace and commission from God was to behave as Paul did, where he would travel around, he would go and bring the gospel, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was stoned, he was all kinds of things, he was arrested. He was shipwrecked. All the things that happened to Paul, those things were fitting, not because they were bad things happening to him, but because he was willing to go through them to serve this God who had so graciously saved him. Paul's life was fitting, was worthy of the calling to which he had been called. It fit with it, and he's calling us to be the same way. And so what he's saying here in this uh, in this little half paragraph that we're looking at this morning is that I've been teaching you doctrine, Paul says. I've been laying it out before you, and I want you to know it. I want you to understand it. I want you to think through it. I want you to know the consequences of it, and I want you to be willing to live consistently with it. That your life would reflect what you believe, not just generally, but even to the level of details. Suppose a person becomes convinced one way or another that uh, we need to get rid of all plastics out of our life. That plastic uh, is a bad thing, plastics are, are evil because of this or that, and, and they, don't, they don't break down and they last forever and, and they cause harm in this way and that way, and the person becomes convinced we need to get rid of of plastics, right? 
Well, okay, you can, you can believe that. You're entitled uh, to your opinion. You're entitled to act on that and everything. But, but that person needs to understand. If that person is to be consistent, needs to think about what the consequences are of that belief. How that belief, how that position works its way into various aspects of life. And so I just did a very brief search did you know that plastics can be found in tea bags? Tea bag, even organic tea is placed in a tea bag that has is made with plastics. So if you're going to do away with plastics, you've got to think about something like that or even just chewing gum. Did you know that? You chew it, well plastics are involved in how that works. I don't understand it uh, beyond what I've just said. <laughs> Sunscreen often has plastic in it. I know. Did someone say chocolate? That's, you shouldn't say that. Talk, <laughs> talk like that in church. <laughs> when you go to a store and they give you a receipt, that receipt is made with plastics. Not all of them. Many of them are. And this, these are just a few very simple things, Right? When I think do away with plastics, perhaps I, perhaps I think, you know, do away with the plastic, you know, gallon milk jug, and that's about the extent of what I, but it reaches into everything. And some of you have parts that have been, uh, you've had surgically implanted to keep you alive and things like that that have plastics. So if we're going to be consistent in our position that we must do away with plastics, what I'm saying is that it reach, has far-reaching consequences. It goes into aspects and areas of life that perhaps we have not seen before, perhaps we've not thought about before. So Paul is not simply calling us to be consistent in that you say you're a Christian, you should act like a Christian. That, that's tr true. But he's saying, given this doctrine that I have taught you, now that you understand this salvation so much better, now that you understand the, the, the far-reaching consequences of it, think about your own life and think about how those truths impact all manner of aspects of your life, like the plastics affect your chewing gum choices. We need to consider the various ways our doctrine, the things that we believe to be true, the various ways that doctrine is to work itself out in our day-to-day -day lives, in our relationships, in our church. We need to think about what some of that means Paul says, live consistently with your beliefs, with your Christian calling. Well, your, your calling is defined by grace. That's the second step in our logic here that we need to think about. Paul, uh, in working through Ephesians, has defined their calling. He's described how it came about, and here we are picking up the thought midstream. And so, for us to really get a grasp on what he's talking about, we need to reflect on the fact that your calling is defined by grace. And so we look back just briefly at chapter 2. And chapter 2 is where we see really the application to us as individuals, as, as people. We see the application of this gospel that Paul has been made a minister of and that is that includes these great spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ that he talked about in chapter 1. So we see in chapter 2, the first couple of verses there, Paul would have us remember our deadness. That's what we were born into. He would have us remember our disobedience, the former manner of life when we lived in unbelief. He would remember, he would have us remember what, what is the the destiny of a person who is in that condition, what, 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 what destination can they look at? He says, we were by nature children of wrath, verse 3, like the rest of mankind. So when we're thinking about, when we're pondering this calling that is ours, we need to think about the fact that we were called from such a condition, deserving of nothing but God's wrath and God's judgment and God's punishment. Well, he moves on and 
chapter 2 and verses 4 through 7, He would have us remember God's grace and undeserved love for us. That though we were such people, dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were following the course of this world, that we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, that that was us, that we were dead, that we were deserving of God's wrath. That was, that's what sin does for us. That's what condition we were in. And while we were in that condition, a loathsome condition, we read verse 4, but God, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, you were deserving of His judgment, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This grace, this calling of ours is ours by the grace of God alone. Remember God's grace and undeserved love for us. And then he moves on in, in uh, chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10. And he would, he would have us remember that we are His workmanship from start to finish. It's not as if God just rescues us from drowning in, this, in the cesspool and then puts us on the land and says, okay, now figure out how to walk, figure out how to run, figure out how to live, and do it right. Chop, chop. That would be God's grace if He were just to rescue us and then keep us from drowning in, in the bog and, and then putting us on dry land. That's grace, isn't it? Because we don't deserve that. We deserved to stay in the bog. But it's not, it's not as if He only takes us out and puts us on dry land. He gives us His Spirit within us. He actually empowers us. He actually works within us and He, he places before us these good works which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and empowers us to do them. You see, from beginning to end, this calling of ours is by His grace. Paul would have us remember this. And then he would have us remember as well in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2 how God has united greatly differing peoples into one people of God in Christ. People who are as different as Jew and Gentile, hostile to one another. That those people who were so far separated from one another, one having received the blessings of God, having received the commandments and the promises and the Word of God, and the other left out in the cold. And the enmity that formed between them, the name-calling each direction, the, the hatred that was there. God took people like that, and form them into one new body in Christ, putting to death that hostility, putting to death that enmity, the former hostility that existed between differing peoples is destroyed as the differing peoples are made into one. And so Paul will say to Gentiles in chapter 2 and verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, that we who were on the outs have been brought in, that God has formed one new man instead of two. That is God's grace. And you think about even the disciples that Jesus called to Himself. It wasn't like he went to a Bible study one night and found 12 great friends and said, you 12 will do. Perfect. Let's form a team. I'm going to call you my disciples and we're going to go do that. No, that's not what he did. Some of them knew each other. Some of them were related to each other. Some of them were, were similar to one another in a lot of ways. But he called a zealot, a rebel, one who's life mission was to fight against Rome, to, to seek and pursue the freedom of his people, called that guy, and called a man who was a tax collector, who was a Jew but who had sold out to Rome to make himself wealthy. 
Can you imagine two people who hated each other more, naturally speaking? And Jesus says, I'll take you and you and puts them on the same team. I would love to have seen some of the conversations they must have had. But that's what God does. When He saves us, He doesn't just save a group of people. Now, I was in a unique situation when, when I became a Christian that there were a number of us all from the same friend group in high school who, within the course of just a few months, became Christians together. It was a very unique uh, situation. Normally, God saves people here and there who are very different, like us, and puts us into one body. And Paul would have us remember that that is what God has done, that in God's grace, in calling Christians, calling people to Himself and giving them salvation, He has formed a new body where that hostility has been broken down. The the former loyalties that that, that caused enmity, the the divisions, the dividing wall of hostility, that's been broken down. Now, he's talking very specifically about Jew and Gentile here, but it has application beyond that and forms one new man out of us. Your calling is defined by grace. The fact that you get to be a Christian, a person formerly hostile to God and rebellious against Him, who now has peace with God and eternal life and fellowship with other Christians, all of that is entirely a work of God's saving grace. So when he says, makes reference here to your calling, live in a way that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, that's what he's referring to. Your calling is by grace. Beginning to end, it is by grace. And remembering that truth is key to living in a way that is fitting for a Christian. You are to live consistently with your calling and your calling is defined by grace. Point number three, and we move on in our passage to verse two of chapter four, where he begins to describe here certain attitudes that are essential to unity. He says, live worthy of the calling to which you've been called, verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, here's where we get to our application. This, uh, these couple of verses here really get us right into application, and that makes sense because uh, Paul has been talking doctrine, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and now for m- most of the remainder of the book, he's going to be talking application, and that's where we are. And the first thing we want to notice, the first attitude that's essential to unity is humility. Be humble. Be humble. A proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. Given what we just talked about, where we came from and how it is that we get brought into this Christian life, how it is that we get saved, that we get to have peace with God, just reflecting on that for a moment ought to kill all pride. It it doesn't, I realize that. I realize that in my own life. But it ought to, when I reflect back on on just the first three verses of chapter 2, and I think about where where I came from, and I think about what I deserve because because of my own sin, because of my own loyalties to self. And that was each of us. That was every one of us. Now, you, you may have come to Christ at, at, a, at a very young age, and so you didn't experience the, the full depth of that. And, and I, at 18, when I became a Christian, didn't experience the full depth of that, but I got a taste. And the person who comes to Christ at five years old has a taste. They know what their selfishness is. They know what it means to lie. They know what it means to throw a sibling under the bus. And so... Paul starts right off the bat in chapter 4 here and saying, how, how do you live a life that's worthy, that's consistent with what you're, what you're believing? How, how, how do you live a life that shows you have, you have reflected upon the truths you believe and reflected upon what they mean practically in the way you live as a Christian? And this is one of them. 
I know there are proud Christians. I know that I can be a proud Christian, and that is a contradiction in terms. Because the very starting point for the Christian to come to Christ, the very starting point is to realize I am in a position of need and lack and deficiency, and even worse, deserving of God's judgment. That's the starting point. Our origin story. It's only by God's grace that anyone at all has peace with God, and it is certainly by God's grace and only by God's grace that I get to have peace with God, that I get to be a Christian. And so, Christian, be humble. How do we live a life that is worthy, that is consistent with? Well, step one, humility. That should be no surprise to us, but step two is gentleness. With all humility and gentleness. What, what is gentleness? Well, I think I have, I have images of, of, of gentleness in, in, in practical life, you know, when you're being gentle with a, a baby, for example, and you tell, you know, the, your, your, your child who's, you know, not much older than the baby, you know, you're going to hold the baby, got to be gentle, <laughs> especially if the older child's a boy, right? You've got to be gentle, son. This is not going to go well. Be careful, right? So there's a, there's a gentleness. There's a, a, a tenderness that goes there, and I think we understand that. Um, it's the opposite of violence. Gentleness would be the opposite of violence. Um, Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, right? There's gentleness there. But how do we, how, how do we define it? He's, he's not just saying stop hitting one another. That's also good advice, Christians. Stop hitting each other. <laughs> but that's not quite what he's talking about. As I, as I read through the New Testament references to uh, gentleness, I, I, I was trying to piece together kind of the, the essence of the idea. And, and I, think, I think this is gentleness. Gentleness is when we recognize the person we're talking to has the right and may have the need to take a moment to work through a situation. We're not just talking about being gentle, holding a baby, right? But we're talking about in other circumstances, how are we gentle with one another? It's when we, when we give each other a moment to work through something. You see how that's very different than me having determined what's going to happen and then just moving you into the, no, we're not doing that, stop that, no, that's what we're going to do, no, over here. You see how like a bull in a china shop is the opposite of gentleness. I think as we, as we ponder this word, we, we recognize that the New Testament attaches the ideas of courtesy and respect toward other people is attached to this idea of gentleness. And so I, I, don't, I don't know exactly how to define it, but perhaps it's, it's giving the other person a chance to work through it without shoving them into the spot. You don't just throw shoulders walking through the crowd. You can do that walking through a crowd and just knock people out of the way, or you can work gently through a crowd, can't you? And you might have to, you know, let people know you're there so that they can move aside so that you can move through the crowd. That's, that's being gentle, as opposed to the guy who just goes right on through knocking people out of the way. That would be the opposite of gentleness. And so Paul says, we are to be humble and we are to be gentle with one another like siblings. Parents can observe and see when their siblings are being gentle with one another or not. He would have us be gentle. It's one of the applications of the great doctrine that he's been teaching us. Thirdly, be patient. Be patient. That's easy, right? No problem. Be patient. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not easy, and it is a little bit of a problem. One, uh, one scholar defined patience here as that long-suffering which makes allowance for others' shortcomings and endures wrong rather than flying into a rage and desiring vengeance. Being patient with the other person. Letting them, it's, it's, these are all related to one another, by the way. It's letting the person work through the situation and, and, and not acting, even when you uh, give an instruction. Parents know about this uh, as well. And, and 
this is not just parenting advice, but really relates to marriage as well. When you, when you give a suggestion, when you say something to your spouse and the, and the spouse's initial reaction is against that, just chill for a minute and let, let, let it blow over and let it settle a little bit. And then you, because that initial reaction may not be what you need to respond to. Usually it's not. Usually if you let it sit for a minute, then, then the, the initial reaction kind of dissipates and you get to deal with what's really going on there. The same way with a child. If you give a child uh, instruction or correction, particularly correction, an initial reaction may not be a great one. Well, you can respond to their reaction by reacting strongly against it and just escalating everything and making it all worse and pretty soon you turn it into a fight. It didn't need to happen. If you were just patient for a minute and let the initial reaction dissipate a little bit, you can deal with what's really going on. Paul would have us be patient, be humble, be gentle, be patient, and then fourthly, bear with one another, or a a loving forbearance. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. Now, this is a very, very interesting one. What does it mean to bear with? Some translations have endure, endure. To endure is to continue on despite distasteful, inconvenient, or even painful obstacles, right? I hated running cross-country in high school. I'm sorry. I hated it. (laughs) It was terrible. Every step of the way, I didn't enjoy. I just thought I was supposed to do a sport, and I was too small for football, so I ran cross-country. Should have tried soccer, but I thought it was a weenie sport at the time, so I'm also sorry there. I've been corrected since. Don't worry. But when you're running cross-country and in your you know, you're finishing up the race or, uh, and by the way, I've, I've continued to run later on in life and I enjoy it more now than I did in high school. But when you get a blister, when you get shin splints, when you're um, running up that last hill or whatever, and it's just, it's painful and you're breathing fire and, and you endure. You continue on despite this obstacle that's unpleasant, that's maybe even painful, that's certainly annoying but you continue on doing what you're doing, right? Well, that, that's the, the idea of, of enduring. In the New Testament, um, there's a great parallel passage, very similar passage in Colossians 3 uh, that talks about this. It involves compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness in relationship with one another. That's part of what's involved in enduring. Now, here's the kicker about this. The instruction that we are to bear with or we to, are to endure in love, bear with one another in love. Here's the implication. Here's the hard part. What this is saying is that sometimes Christians are those painful obstacles. Sometimes Christians are those, those things that stand in our way that are distasteful. And I really don't like the way that's going. Sometimes that thing standing in our way, that inconvenience or that pain, is another Christian. I know that's not a surprise to any of us, but that's the implication of what he's saying here, is that you have been brought together into one body in Christ, and sometimes in that body you will annoy one another. Sometimes you will be abrasive to one another. Sometimes there will be friction with one another in the body of Christ. And that's not because um, the body is, 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 is somehow functioning inappropriately. You know, individually, we have sins we deal with and things like that, but it's not an unexpected situation for the body of Christ to have, to have places of, of inflammation within the body. But it's what we do in those contexts that Paul would have us remember thinking about where we came from, thinking about how it is we got to be included in the body of Christ by the grace of God. Because thinking about what I was, thinking about what I was like, thinking about what God has done in drawing, drawing me to Himself, that He not only rescued me out of the pool and, and put me on a dry place so I wouldn't drown, but He also put His Holy Spirit within me and, and gave me a life to live, empowering me to do it, that, that from beginning to end, the Christian life has been about God's grace. So that's why I get to be here, keeping all of that in mind. And I run across an obstacle that is to say, another person in the body of Christ that is an inconvenience or a, 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 a point of friction 
a frustration. I'm called to endure. I'm called to continue on in loving forbearance. My natural, my natural response to that, of course, may be just to shove that person aside. Or in, in reality, that's that, that's not my response. But we we each have different way, sinful ways we respond to those points of friction, to the spot of irritation. We have different ways we respond to it. And um, for mine, it might just be to, to check out of that relationship, just unplug from, that, from that, that situation so I don't have to deal with that irritation. Right? Others, uh, for others, it may be to crush, to go after, and, and we need to put that down. We need to get rid of that. We need to crush that irritation. That may be your response. There might be other responses, but, but I'm reminded of that, that, that little that little piece of sand that gets in the oyster and is a point of irritation. And, and the way that oyster responds by coating it, and it makes something beautiful out of it. It didn't just spit it out, probably because it doesn't have the mechanism to do that. <laughs> it probably would if it had that mechanism, right? We don't get to spit each other out, though. There's something that beautiful, beautiful that comes from that. And Paul would have us to continue on and bear with one another. And there's a lot to think about there, about bearing with one another and, and, and how um, we live in a culture of convenience. And when you become an inconvenience to me, I'm probably going to just set you aside in my life because you're inconvenient. We don't get to do that in the body of Christ. We are to bear with one another in love. That strikes right at the heart, perhaps, of our own relational styles and certainly what our culture would value and things like that. But, but in light of biblical culture, in light of Christian culture, in light of what we have been saved from and saved to, this is how we are to treat one another. We are to bear with one another, even when I'm a frustration to you or you to me. Bear with one another and then finally be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. By the way, this is a large part of why Paul is writing Ephesians is he's addressing disunity within the body there in Ephesus because Jew and Gentile are standing against one another. They're maintaining, uh, they've, they've re-erected that dividing wall of hostility and, and Jews over here and Gentiles over there, at least in different ways that they were thinking. And, and, and Paul is saying no. Paul's argument uh, throughout in chapter 2 has been that God has broken down that dividing wall. The thing that would keep you apart, that would keep you in two different camps. The things that would keep you separated in the body of Christ, Christ has broken down. And He has formed one new body, one new man, brought together. He wants them to understand that and apply it in not just in their theology, which he spends a lot of time in chapter 2 doing, but in their life, which is chapter 4 and following. This is, this, these are some of the things that Paul has, uh, has said in chapter 2. He himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Great play on words. Verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit has unified us in the body of Christ. He has bound us together in a relationship of peace. That's what has been accomplished definitively for the Christian church. And part of what it means to walk worthy of that calling is to be eager to keep, to maintain that unity and peace intact. It has been established. Maintain it. It has been given to you. You are in one body be desirous to maintain that peace, that 
unity. We don't have to attain it because it's been given to us. The command here isn't build some form of unity. It's maintain it, keep it. We are to strive to maintain that peace that has been established for us by Christ. That's what He would have us do. And if we think about that in terms of our relationships, there's far-reaching application. It's a little bit like the question about plastics. Where does, where does that train of thought stop? The impact is great. The Christian life is built upon doctrine. And the first half of Ephesians is written to develop key aspects of that doctrine. God has been at work since before the foundation of the world, electing and redeeming and calling and forgiving and sealing His people for salvation and and, and the glorious inheritance that's ours. In time, He took fallen people who were dead in their trespasses and sins and made us alive in Christ. Then He's laid out for us good works that we are to do that we should walk in them. In other words, God has saved us by grace from beginning to end. That's the the powerful, wonderful, glorious doctrine He's been teaching in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The Christian life is built upon doctrine, but it can never end there. Our doctrine, if it's really true, and if we really believe it, must begin to show itself practically in our lives. And as we've seen, there are some far-reaching conclusions or consequences to the doctrine that Paul has taught here. And we can and we should, and I encourage you to learn all the biblical doctrine available to us in God's Word. As we internalize that sound, God-honoring doctrine, it begins to shape our lives and relationships and church. Knowing the condition from which you were saved, our our lostness and rebellion. Let's be humble with one another. Knowing our own tendency to rebel against God and demand our own way with God and others, let's be gentle with one another. Knowing that we are often slow to learn and given to taking two steps forward and one step back in our own Christian life, let's be patient with one another. Knowing that we too are not always the most pleasant or helpful people to be around. And that we can behave in ways that at times can be distasteful and inconvenient and even painful for other people. Let's strive to bear with one another in love. And knowing that God has intentionally taken people from varied backgrounds and beliefs and practices and preferences and prejudices and problems and strengths and weaknesses, intentionally doing so, He's given us all a Spirit-forged unity together in Christ, a bond that is fashioned out of peace. Let us be eager and intentional and energetic to maintain and keep that unity intact. This is what God has called us to do. This is what He uses the church around us to equip us to do. This is why He has placed His Spirit within us to empower us to do this. And this is what glorifies Him when we do it. So let's walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And may God help us in that endeavor. Let's pray. Father, we have read simple words, easy to say, not hard to comprehend, and and yet they strike right to the heart of our own sinful preferences, perhaps. They hit us in places we would rather not have change come. They convict us in ways we would just as soon not be convicted. Father, You have placed us into the body of Christ. You have accomplished our salvation beginning to end. You have
sent your Son who obeyed in our place, who died in our place, who was raised, and in whom we have life and peace with you by faith, simple faith in Christ. You've placed your Spirit within us. You've given us your Word in our hands. You've given us the body of Christ around us, and that body of Christ around us is such a blessing to us, giving us strength as we minister to one another in, in ways that we ourselves are weak. We receive, we receive blessing and strengthening from the body around us in ways that we are deficient. We're bolstered up by the body of Christ. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would be more and more desirous to live in this way with one another with humility and gentleness, recognizing where we came from, with patience, recognizing what we're like, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. By Your Spirit, we pray that You would do these kinds of works in our heart, that we would be a blessing to one another, that we would seek out opportunity to be a blessing to one another in these ways and others, that we would give and receive grace. I bow before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us all to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and Happy New Year. There will be a family up front who would love to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you. We will see you next week, and you are dismissed.